Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word and we trust in your spirit to speak and to not just speak through me, uh, but to transform our minds and our hearts into Christ-likeness through your word. So on our end, we need a willingness to learn, grow, receive, and believe your word. And we need only to do just that, declare your word. So speak through me and let it be your words that convey your truths for your people so that your people would glorify you. And we ask all this for the name and for the glory and for the exaltation of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So we pick up in 1 Timothy 6, verses 18 through 19. And we continue in Paul's command concerning money, the rich, and giving. What Paul will show us today is in three parts. Those parts are what actions to do, what those actions produce, and the result of that product. So this text is in three parts. Action, product, result. So it's a pretty complete structure. If you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. And as we work through it, you'll see how clear this really is. And we'll see the contrast between earthly riches and eternal riches. And we talked about this last week because last week in verse 17, Paul presents a warning to those who are rich. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. That means arrogant, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but to set their hopes on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And notice that at the end of verse 17, he doesn't say God provides us with everything you need. Now, God does provide us with everything we need. We get that from Matthew 6 out of Jesus' mouth. But Paul says that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. What we emphasize is that the whole problem with riches, and not that riches are evil in and of themselves, but when riches cause us to sin, what riches produce in people is a lack of sustainable and real satisfaction. And that's why Paul makes it a point that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy because our aim is to enjoy God. And God is essentially telling everybody, if you think that money and being rich is gonna give you all the joy in life you need, you're missing out on me. I'm the most satisfying thing you can have. And that is how Paul ends verse 17. And then he goes into verse 18 and tells us more about money and about those who are rich and what to do with it. And at the heart of all this content concerning money and riches and giving is the most important truth in all the world, the gospel. And the gospel is not something that just saved us, but it is something that continues to sanctify us. And how you manage your money directly reveals to what degree the gospel has transformed your godly disciplines. That is a point I want you to get today. So I'm going to repeat this because I'm also going to repeat it later in different terms. How you manage your money including giving, 
directly reveals to what degree the gospel has transformed your godly disciplines. Now, a couple of points of clarity before we dip into the text, okay? I don't like to give disclaimers. If you know me well, you know that typically if I'm giving disclaimers, it's not a healthy decision, but I think this is important because money is such a touchy subject. I've talked to my dad. My dad will listen to my sermon sometimes and go, stop, just, just say it, man. Just stop saying, oh, I don't mean that or that. He's like, just say it. God's word says if people don't like it, they'll get over it. It's <laughs> like, easy for you to say halfway across the state. So um, I have to live with these people. So a <laughs> couple of things, just three quick things. Number one, I am not telling you how much to give. This isn't even about giving. This is not a giving sermon. This is a how do, we, how do we mentally construct in our minds and in our hearts develop a good theology about money and about riches and about what matters most and what is money's ultimate purpose, which we'll see, is the gospel. And typically our problem is we make money the issue. Money's the problem or money's the goal or money's the thing. And we don't think of money as just another one of God's many instruments that serve his kingdom and glorify his gospel. So number one, I'm not telling you how much to give because we're not really, we'll talk about giving, but this isn't about giving. Number two, I'm not telling you what percentage of your money to give. And number three, I'm not telling you to give more. I have no problem telling you that you must give because the Bible, God, Jesus, Paul, command us to give. So I'm comfortable saying you have to give. But the logistics are between you and God. And as your pastor, I trust God to work in you as he wills. So to ensure not that you just are giving money to the church, but that for the sake of your spiritual maturity, you are giving and that as you give, you are growing in the degree of sacrifice you make in your giving. That's my heart for you. I want mature believers. Money is not my aim But biblically, money that is given will be the product of maturing believers. So ultimately, though, Paul's talking to the rich. And last week we talked about who are the rich. And we could think of this. I mean, essentially everyone in this room is rich according to Paul's standards. Uh, I I shouldn't say everybody in this room. I don't know everybody's situation, but most People's, most people in this room are probably rich according to Paul's standard. If you have more than you need, you're probably rich. And part of the issue in America is that we do have more than we need. The problem with us is we live in a culture where we are told and then we follow this culture where if you have more than you need, then you should use that extra money to get yourself other things. And so we spend our extra money on stuff. And then... Uh, we also are told get into debt because having credit's good and paying off your credit's good. So we get into debt and we get into heaps of debt and then we're paying and then all that extra money we have, we don't have because we have to pay off our debts and we have to pay for our toys and we have to pay for our, 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 you know, excessive things or whatever. And that's just kind of the culture we live in. I'm not saying that everyone does that, but that's the culture. And so, Uh, we might have a lot of extra money. Most people do have extra money, although I will say, like I've said the last couple weeks, it does feel tighter than normal lately, doesn't it? So, uh, but, but ultimately in my lifetime, the average American is rich according to Paul's standards because in the first century, riches, anyone who was rich was anyone who had more than food, clothes, and shelter. And most of us have more than food, clothes, and shelter. 
We have multiple vehicles, we have a bunch of stuff, we have a bunch of toys, we have excessive things. And I don't mean that in a negative way, That's, those aren't bad things, they're just things that we have. And a lot of people I know have things that are way more than what I have, and I know that they have those things specifically because they want to do kingdom work with those things. And that's like how God has led them, he's provided with them, provided for them what they need to do those particular things or have those particular things so they can do what they think God has called them to do for the kingdom of God. And from an outside perspective, it might look like they have a lot, but they might be using it for God's glory. We just don't know. But ultimately, I would say that when we use the word rich in this text, those who are rich, I think that applies to most of us. Now, there are the word rich is completely subjective. One person could make $100,000 a year and they would say, I'm poor. And another person's making 50000 and go, you're rich. You know, so like rich is a, it's a, it's a term that we kind of define ourselves. And the amount of money you have is not what determines whether you're rich or not. It's the excess of that which you have that determines whether you're rich. And that's not even the point because the more I start talking about what is rich and what's not rich, then we start talking about specific dollar amounts and money and what is what and who, who has what. And it's like, that's not the point. Paul's point is your heart. Your heart is the point. Regardless of the dollar amount you have or how you spend it, or all those other things, what matters is your heart and what you do with your money from your heart. That's what we're getting at. So we get to verse 18. And Paul says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Now, they obviously refers to those who are financially rich. And the main command here is that believers ought to be generous. Now, just take a moment and think, try to answer this question yourself. Why would it be valuable that God's people are generous? Why would it be important that God's people are generous? I hope that your first thought is, well, because God is generous. And we want to be like God. In fact, in Ephesians 5, Paul says that we're to imitate God and God is generous, so we should be generous too. And so what Paul's getting at is it's not about the money, it's about your heart. And generosity is a part of a godly heart. So contextually, Paul is saying specifically to the rich. To the rich, he says, you must, this is a command, you must be generous with your money. They must give and they must share for the needs of others. But these commands are not only for the rich. The principle revealed, this principle is revealed throughout all of scripture to be honorable to God even when one gives generously without having financial wealth. You don't need to be rich to be generous. So the dollar amount isn't the relevance. The relevance is the heart. Is the, is the heart that wants to be like God and wants to be generous. And I'll give you an example. In Mark 12, 41 through 44, we catch Jesus watching people give money in the temple. And it says, And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. 
And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So what is it that makes her offering so much better than the others? Faith. Faith makes her offering better. She gave all that she had to live on. Would you receive your paycheck this week and give the entire paycheck to the church or give the entire paycheck to homeless people or give your entire paycheck to some particular need? I'm willing to bet that everyone in this room would be like, uh, I'm not there yet. <laughs> I don't know about that, man. That's a pretty big ask. I'm not asking you to do that. We got things to pay for, mortgages, utilities, fuel, food. And you need, to, you need those things to live and you need those things to work and you need to work to take care of your family. And just back in chapter 5, not long ago, Paul just said it's a requirement of believers to provide for their families. And if you don't, Paul says you're literally worse than an unbeliever if you don't provide for your family. So, of course, we have money. We make money. We work to make money. So we have money to provide for those whom we love. That is fine and that makes sense. But it's just... A question I ask, would you give away your entire paycheck to the needs of others? I ask that question to put things in perspective for you so that you can, um, you can just imagine the kind of faith that was required for this poor widow to give everything she had. That is the kind of faith that made her offering so fruitful. That she gave it all. It wasn't much, but it's all she had. I remember being poor. I remember being really poor, living in an apartment with my friends. Uh, our apartment was disgusting. Three dudes. It's just gross. We were 20 years old. Um, I had a job, and then I didn't have a job because I didn't. I wasn't a very good person back then. <laughs> um, I didn't like show up for work on time, and then I got fired from one job, and another job I just didn't like, so I just stopped going and stuff like that, whatever. So I was strapped for money. I wasn't making very good money. I was living in this apartment, and I remember uh, me and my buddies, because this is what we did, we were like, man, we need cigarettes. So we're like, what if we just scour the, not food, cigarettes. So what if we <laughs> scour the entire apartment and lift cushions and we would scrape together like as many pennies and nickels and dimes that we could until we had like three dollars and we would go buy the cheapest pack of cigarettes we could and we would not eat but just smoke cigarettes i don't know guys that's just where i was okay and so if you wanted me to share my whole testimony that's the good part okay <laughs> it's way worse than that but um I just remember what it felt like, because I'm not like this anymore, but I remember what it felt like to pull up the cushion and see like three pennies. I was like, oh, whoa, three pennies. And you'd put them in your pocket. Like, oh man, we're going to get there. Like, we're going to find some change around here. Like that feeling of just trying to scrape together a couple dollars. And then if you had asked me at that time, why don't you give it to the church? I'd be like, no, this is mine. So I know that feeling of the poor widow just to have a couple pennies is just such a big deal. 
And she was way more broke than I was. She gave it all. Like, so that feeling is like those, when you're down to your last pennies, every penny matters. Every, that, that penny is way more valuable than, than you think it is. Because today, if you're walking outside and you see a penny on the ground, you're probably not going to pick it up. I remember as a kid, I'd see a penny on the ground and I'd be like, ooh, find a penny, pick it up, rest of the day, you'll have good luck, right? Do you guys remember that saying? And I'd be like, ooh, penny, and if it's heads up, double the good luck, right? <laughs> Which turns out is not true, but like just the, the value of a penny. And today I would walk right past a penny, I wouldn't pick it up. And it just goes to show the desperation of this woman. And her desperation is not for money. Her desperation is clearly for God. And Jesus is teaching us in, with this poor widow that the act of giving is not the aim. The action of giving, actually giving money is not the goal. The dollar amount is not the goal. The check you write on is not the goal. Your act of doing it is not the goal. Those are all actions and those actions reflect something greater, the heart. What matters when we give is our heart. Jesus is clear about that all throughout his ministry, throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount. He is constantly addressing the heart, not the actions. He's fighting against the mentality that with the law is we must do what the law says. And Jesus is fighting against the actions of the law that are done without the right heart. And he's saying the actions are a product of the heart. The heart is what matters most. Forget the actions. Don't do the right thing. Get your heart right with God and the actions will come from the Spirit. And the degree of sacrifice in your offering reveals the condition of your heart. I'm going to repeat that because I want you to hear what I'm saying to you. The degree of sacrifice in your offering reveals the condition of your heart. That is not meant to feel condemning to you. You shouldn't hear that and go, oh, I'm not sacrificial enough. Oh, my heart's not good enough. Oh, that is legalism. Get that garbage out of your head. And all I want you to hear is, you're telling me with an encouraging word that I have the opportunity to be more generous by being more sacrificial. And as my sacrifice grows, my satisfaction in my God will grow and that will bring him more honor and glory. And my response to that is, yes, that, exactly. I don't care about your money. I care about your heart. And all of us have an, atta- all of us have an unhealthy attachment to money. All of us. To some degree, in some way, maybe a little, maybe a lot, but all of us have it just a little bit. And we want to work that out, and we work that out with sacrifice and generosity. The others who gave in this story that that, that, uh, Mark tells us about Jesus, the others who were giving much more than the poor widow... They gave a lot of money. Jesus says they gave out of their abundance, but, but Jesus says she gave the most. 
Her faith and trust in God, and clearly she didn't give the most, right? Like they gave more money than her, but Jesus says she gave the most. I hope you guys understand the concept there. Her faith and trust in God to provide for her, to give all that she has, magnifies God's glory so much more than those who gave out of their abundance. Jesus does not condemn those who gave out of their abundance. Okay, He, he is not teaching that those other people who gave out of their abundance are bad or evil. He's not saying anything negative about them. He's not saying that these are bad dudes or that they shouldn't have or they, that they should have given more. Although I think he's hinting at they could give more. But that's not his point. Isn't what they were doing. His point is what she's doing. And those others who are giving out of their abundance just serve as a comparison for the kind of sacrifice this woman was willing to make. Those others who gave out of their abundance, they're still sacrificing. They could have used that money to buy a new you know, four-wheeler, but they don't. They, they, they give it away anyway, so they're still doing a good thing. But Jesus is comparing their, their degree of sacrifice to hers. He's saying her sacrifice is greater, and therefore she's giving more. Because that sacrifice, to give more sacrificially, requires more faith. So her faith is stronger, so her gift is greater. At the heart of this story, at the heart of the story, Jesus is magnifying his gospel. That is what he's really getting at. Sacrifice. And that's what his gospel is. Sacrifice. And that's why he's magnifying the story. I think Jesus is worried about money. You think he's like, well, I just counted her two coins, so that equals, and this is how much money is in the pot. And so now we have this much money to do that with and make sure we get the budget right. And he's not worried about all that stuff. He's not thinking about the logistics. He's not thinking about the money itself. He's not thinking about the worldly things. He's saying the money is just an expression of what's going on in people's hearts. And the whole point of talking about money is just to use it as something that you care about. And since you care about it, you'll listen to talking about money. And then we can use money as an avenue to get to your heart And when we get to your heart, we want to tell you something important. And that something important is the gospel. And the gospel is predicated on sacrifice. And so money should also be sacrificed. Just like everything in your life should be sacrificed. Your time should be sacrificed. Your gifts should be sacrificed. When I mean sacrifice, I mean you should give them up and use them for God's kingdom. Everything in your life should be a sacrifice. I want to sacrifice my family. That sounds weird saying, but I want to sacrifice my family to the church so that our family would be used for God's kingdom. I want to take time away from my family, doing things I'd love to do, and be here instead, and serve you instead, and love you instead, and lead you in music, and lead you in teaching, and lead you in preaching, and share with you, and counsel you, and meet with you, and talk with you, and love with you, and, and, and care about you, and play games with you, and spend time with you, and have build friendship with you, and eat with you, and pray with you, and read with you, and do all those things with you, and I'll sacrifice all kinds of time to do that with you and I know you are doing the same because I see you around me all the time and if I'm doing it and you're doing it that means we're both doing it which is why we have such healthy and good and fun loving relationships in this church which I love and what only happens because the people in this room make sacrifice when I woke up this morning my first thought was I'd rather keep sleeping and God's like you don't get to do that And I'm like, I guess I'm going to sacrifice another hour of sleep to be at church and prepare and do music practice and all that stuff. 
Okay, so that's my sacrifice this morning. Small, little, not a big deal. And you might look at me and go, well, it's kind of your job, dude, so you kind of have to show up. And it's like, hey, this isn't a job. Remember that. It's a calling. So, <laughs> but, but I mean, my, my point is that there, we're always and constantly sacrificing something to do something for God, to do something for the church, to do something for others, to serve, to give. Whatever it is, everything requires sacrifice. Money is just one of those things. The issue with money is that it's the biggest thing we have a hard time letting go of. Because money gets us everything else. And this woman gave up everything. This poor widow, she sacrificed everything she had. And she did it in trust and confidence in God that, would, that he would reward her with everything she truly desires, needs, and wants. And that is exactly how you could describe Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Jesus is, Jesus is using this widow to talk about sacrifice because money's not what he's really talking about. Money's the avenue to talking about something more important that something more important that Jesus wants to talk about is sacrifice. And he wants to talk about sacrifice because sacrifice is the heartbeat of the gospel and Jesus wants to talk about the gospel. That's what he's getting at. He endured hard times on earth. He endured death on a cross with ridicule, beatings, and unimaginable suffering because he trusted in his Father to fulfill all his desires and hopes and assurances in eternity. That's why Hebrews 12.2 says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Meaning, Jesus was completely confident and assured that his earthly sacrifice would secure his eternal reward and his follow-through on that sacrifice. Him actually making the sacrifice is proof that he believed God's promise that sacrifice will be abundantly rewarded. That woman giving her two coins is proof that she believes God's promise that he will provide if she will sacrifice. That is the kind of giving the church should want to do. And given that money seems to be the greatest threat against our faith, to give it is one of the most significant ways to magnify the gospel of Christ, to sacrifice your money, to show God, and yes, prove to God that you know and believe and hope in something much better. You're not proving, you're not earning his favor. You're not earning salvation. You're not showing God, God, look how good I am. You're not proving to God that you're righteous. You're proving to God that he is transforming you into Christ's likeness and Christ is sacrificial. And so when you give sacrificially, when you manage your money sacrificially, You are proving to God that Christ is reigning in you. You are proving to God that God is at work. You are reflecting back to God. God, I appreciate how you've transformed me and that now Jesus is giving out of me for his exaltation and your glory. I am the instrument. Your money is another tool that this instrument gets to use to magnify Christ, to reveal the heartbeat of the gospel as sacrifice, and to truly give up that one thing in the human life that we need most or that we think we need most, which is money. 
Nothing scarier apart from, you know, like things like you're, you have a child and your child gets sick with like cancer. I mean, those are terrifying moments. But in the day-to-day living of every average human, nothing scarier than being without. Nothing terrifies you more than when you're broke and you don't know if you can pay the mortgage or the rent or you can get fuel in your car to even get to gas to get gas to get to work. And those kinds of things, those are scary times. And we panic and we worry and we immediately resort to bad behavior and poor thoughts that are not Christ-like. Oh, well, I guess I just have to, you know, we start coming up with all these solutions that aren't godly solutions. And it reveals that money controls us, not that we control it or that Christ controls us. To give is one of the most significant ways to magnify the gospel of Christ. To sacrifice your money so to show God and to prove to God that you know and believe and hope in something much better. I'm repeating these things because I want you to hear how important it is that we let go of money. It is an instrument for God's glory. It's an instrument for the gospel. By sacrificing that which the world values so much, God will reward us in ways our current finite minds cannot comprehend. Believing that is faith. You realize that your entire life is a testing ground. Your entire existence on this earth, your life from the moment you believed in Christ until the day that you die is a test of your faith. And and when I say test your faith, that doesn't mean that you're being tested, that that like you have to, oh, I'm being tested. I, I I better be good. Again, that's legalism. It's a test of your faith in Christ. So it's not a test of how good will you be now? That's not what faith is. It's how much will you give up to depend on Christ alone? That's the test. So if you're wondering why there's all these hardships in your life and difficulties and struggles and sufferings and challenges and hardships and this and that, all these things that happen in your life, God is working on you. And every time he works on you, he's saying, come to me, depend on me, trust in me, give up that thing. There's something in your life, this hardship in your life exists. I put it there on purpose, intentionally, so that in your life you would realize there's something you're holding on to too tightly and it ain't me. So I'm going to work that thing out of your life and I'm going to force sacrifice in you through time according to God's will and his timing and however he does that. And he's going to force sacrifice into your life to cause you to give up things that are keeping you from depending on him. That's the test. The test is how often and how willing and how available is your heart to say, I give it up to you. The test isn't be good, do good, follow my rules, obey me, do the things I say, be righteous. That's legalism. Those things are true and they're the product of trusting and depending on Christ in faith. And when I say they're the product, because he's the one doing those things. So your life is, your entire life is a test of your faith. And the only answer to every question on that test is, I trust in you, Jesus. I trust in you, Jesus. I sacrificially will give up anything that you need me to give up to depend on you alone. And he's like, good, let's start with your money. 
And we're like, oh, oh, whoa, dude, I thought we were going to ease into this. How about I give up like, you know, an hour of video games or an hour of this or that or, you know, maybe I'll pray a few more times in the week. Can we slowly get to that? And God's like, I need you to stop worshiping stuff and things and comfort, which you all get from money. So I need to work on money in your life so I can get to your heart so you would depend on me. So the question is, how enduring is your faith? How strong is your faith? How lasting is your faith? Where is your faith at? And the answer is found in your giving. And this teaches us two things. Giving is not an external action. It is an internal act of faith. The actual amount of money you give matters only in as much as it reflects the faith in your heart. So despite what unbelievers seem to think the Bible says, because I hear this from unbelievers a lot, and I hear it from believers a lot as well. Some believers think this too, but 10% is not a command. You are not commanded to give 10%. I wish we would just get that number out of our heads and stop thinking like that. That number, Satan loves 10%. Loves it. And I think he whispered it into existence. I mean, it's from the Bible. It's from Genesis 14 when Abraham gives 10% of everything he has to Melchizedek. But later in the law, God demands way more than 10% from the Israelite people. They actually end up giving about 26% of their overall wealth annually to the Lord. So, and that's according to his law, which is a law we no longer live in or live by or are are commanded to follow. So we don't have a rule about how much to give. And Satan's like, 10%. Why would Satan, why would Satan want the church to give, especially 10%? 10 10%'s already a lot. I mean, one-tenth of everything you earn and I think that Satan's like, this is perfect because these human beings are so prone to legalism. And if you give them a number and that number's repeated throughout church history enough, people will not be able to get that number out of their head and they will always gravitate to 10%. And it will prevent them from giving generously and abundantly. Look at the early church. What did they give? Everything. Look at the poor widow. What did she give? Everything for the needs of others. Look at Paul going from church to church to church, gathering money for the poor people in Jerusalem. And he goes to the rich people and he says, the poor churches gave a ton. What are you going to do about it? And they're like, I guess we ought to give a ton too because we have a lot more than they do. And they do. And the church is just overwhelmed Paul with gifts so Paul can take those gifts to the poor believers in Jerusalem. When the church is filled with the Spirit, and that's the difference. That's the difference. Why does God not give us a number or a percentage or an exact amount? Because he gave us something better. He gave us himself. He gave us his Holy Spirit. And he put his spirit, his heart, his mind, his truth in the believer. And said, 
I am the most generous and ultimate giver that exists. And I will put myself within you. And you will give in such abundance that it will blow your mind. And with that sacrificial giving in abundance, I will fill your heart with joy. I will fill up the storehouses of heaven with eternal rewards for you. And I will accomplish my work and build my kingdom on this earth for my glory and your satisfaction. But you won't help because you're stuck on 10%. And Satan's like, perfect. What better way to limit the greatest giver in all of existence, God himself, who lives within you? What greater way to limit the great giver, which limits your giving, but then to give you a cap, a cutoff, a number that we are naturally gravitating toward, 10%. And then we give 10% and we go, I did my job. I feel good. I gave my 10%. That doesn't mean God's not honored by your gift, okay? If you're giving 10%, or you're trying to give 10%, or maybe you're like, oh, I've gone a little bit over 10%. I'm at 15%. <laughs> I'm like a really righteous believer. Which, let's be honest, if you give more than 10%, you know it, and you feel a little bit good about yourself for it, right? It's okay to feel good about giving. We should feel joyful as we give. But, you know, there's a little bit of arrogance and pride in there. Like, oh, I'll give more than what we're supposed to give. Get that number 10 out of your head. My aim is not to get you to give percentages of dollar amounts or whatever. I, I want to command you to give. We ought to give. But give according to how the Spirit leads you. And that's all I am going to say. It might be $5. It might be $5,000. It might be $500,000. I don't know. That's not up to me. That's up to God who knows way more than me. And God who's in control. I'm not. He's sovereign, trust in him. His spirit is in you and his spirit wants to give and his spirit wants to sacrifice because his spirit wants to turn you into Jesus. And Jesus gave everything up. And money is holding us back from sacrifice and not sacrificing is holding us back from growing and from maturing. So get the number 10 out of your head and start praying to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, fill me up. Fill up my heart, consume me. And how do we get filled with the Spirit? We commune with God. That's how we get filled with the Spirit. We commune with God. We pray, we're in the Word, we communicate. Jesus did it all the time. He got filled with the Holy Spirit by being alone with God and meeting with His Father because nothing fills me up more in my love relationship with my wife than when we spend time together. She talks to me, I talk to her, she loves on me, I love on her, we get close, we get intimate, we get like, you know, we share our hearts and our minds and and it builds a relationship and the more we commune with each other, me and my wife, the stronger our feelings are for each other, the more our presence feels comforting and joyful and pleasant and, and the more we love each other and the more I feel like in love with my wife, you know? Right? That's why women are like, why don't you spend time with me? Because they just want to feel loved. Guys, right? This is why our wives want to spend... And guys, we're just so much easier to please. We're happy being alone for like 15 days in a row. You know, like we're, we're so much more sad. We don't need the way women need. But this is beautiful because men and women are a picture of Christ in the church. And G- Paul says this in Ephesians 5 that the husband is to the wife as Christ is to the church. And who I do, it's good that women need their husbands more. That is 
good. God made women that way. That's a beautiful thing. So that we would see in marriages the reality of how desperate the church should be for our Savior. And how available is Jesus to the church endlessly and constantly, which tells us that husbands should therefore be available to their wives all the time. And we see all of that to, because what we want to be as a church, I say all that because what we want to be as a church is desperate for Jesus. And desperate to commune with our Father like Christ did. And desperate to be in relationship with Him constantly. To meet with Him, to engage with Him, to pray with Him, to talk with Him, to, do, to, to, to commune with Him as much as we can. So that as we do, we feel what we feel when we commune with our spouses. Love. And love is the Holy Spirit. God is love. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is love. When if Romans 5 says that God poured his Holy Spirit into us and he showed us his love. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God pours his spirit into us. That is God loving us. And we get that love in communion with him. And we get filled with the spirit. And when we get filled with the spirit in communion with God, we ought to say, Holy Spirit, fill me up and make me like Jesus. How much money should I give? What, is, what do you want me to give? What do you want me to do with them? Not just giving, but what do you want me to do with the money? How should I spend it? Where should I use it? In what way should I manage it? How much should I save? How much should I give? How much should I spend on this, this, or that? Help me manage my finances so that I am living an abundantly sacrificial life that honors you so that I can be generous like you are. Because if I do that, you are building for me a storehouse in heaven and filling it with rewards. And I have such an eternal perspective about those rewards and such an eternal perspective about my earthly generosity and what it means to me for eternity that I have no problem sacrificing and being without. Well, I'm here because I know that I'd rather have it there where it will never fade. The second thing this teaches us is that the command for the rich to give generously is not just for the rich. That widow was poor. All of us should give generously. Generosity looks different to every person. Generosity is a matter of the heart, not a matter of numbers. If you look at verse 18, this is not just a list of three separate commands. Paul's not giving us three separate commands that the rich must do. Instead, he states that the rich, he says, are to do good. And then he builds on them doing good. And he says that they are to be rich in good works. These are essentially the same statement. Do good and be rich in good works. Same thing. So Paul isn't adding any new information in that second phrase. When he says be rich in good works, he's repeating the same thing he just said. Do good. And he's clarifying the first phrase by enriching the second phrase with the same meaning but in different words. He's playing with the words. He's talking about riches and he goes, you want to be rich? Be rich in good works. And he's comparing earthly wealth to their eternal riches. And is essentially telling them that instead of caring about your earthly riches, you should care more about your eternal riches, which are revealed and stored up through your good works, specifically your good works that come from your vast riches as a sacrifice of worldly possessions to show God that you depend on him more than you depend on that which he has sovereignly given you in wealth. 
Now, the third phrase in verse 18 says, to be generous and ready to share. Again, Paul's not given a new third command. Still the same command. Verse 18 is all one command, expressed in three different ways, and each phrase builds up Paul's point from the last phrase. Essentially, Paul is saying, verse 18, that to the rich, good works is to be generous. That is your good works. So to the rich, he's saying, do good works. Be rich in good works. What are the good works? To give generously. And to be ready to share. That's the good works he's talking about. So verse 18 is one command. Expressed in three different ways. And he's calling giving generously and being ready to share. He's calling that the good works of rich people. That's what good works are here. Now there are obviously other good works rich people can do. But he's specifically saying that's your good work. To give generously and readily. So think about it. If you're rich and you don't give... Or, or you don't give generously, but you serve the church with your time. You go to Bible studies, you fellowship, you're obedient in many ways, and all that is good. You do everything you're supposed to do as a believer. You, you, do, you show up at everything, you, you do a bunch of things. You do give, but you don't give generously, and you don't give richly, and you don't give readily, and you're not ready to share, and you kind of hold your money tight. And that might be why you have a lot of money, because you're kind of tight with it. you know. And, and, and in addition to maybe not being that much of a giver, maybe you don't give at all, or maybe you just know you're not giving generously, but you do everything else you're supposed to do. You show up to everything, you're a part of everything, you're serving in so many ways, and all that stuff is good. That's all good, and it's needed, and it's faithful. Praise God that you do it, but it is essentially like productive procrastination. You are holding off on doing that one thing you know you must do. And you're alleviating yourself from the guilt of not giving by doing other things that are also good and important. And while you ignore that one thing that you, the rich, are specifically commanded to do, which is to share your wealth generously, you're covering your shame about that with other good things while ignoring that one thing you know God is telling you you ought to be doing. It's like productive procrastination. When you, got a, when you have a particular job that needs to get done, you don't want to actually do that job, so you do a bunch of other things. You clean the house, you, you, know, you make a couple meals, you, you, know, you do a bunch of other productively good things, but they distract you from doing the thing you know you're supposed to do. In verse 19, Paul tells us the product of this kind of generosity and the result of that product. He says, Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, this phrase, storing up treasure, reveals that Paul thinks of giving as an investment. We need to change our perspective on giving. We think of giving as giving it away. We need to think of it as an investment. He says that when you give generously, you are storing up treasure as a good foundation. The Greek word for foundation means fund. You are, when you give generously, you are putting that money in a fund. You're not giving it away. It's not leaving you forever. It is added to a fund, essentially. I'm speaking kind of colloquially here. Not exactly. There isn't actually like this fund account up in heaven that God's putting your money into. Okay, but he's kind of speaking rhetorically here that there's this there's this uh, foundation, essentially. And what, what all of this really means is your money is an investment and there's a return on your investment. Paul's point 
is that if you let the money go, if you give, God will return on your gift or return on your investment eternally in ways that are far beyond any value that your money has on this earth. So giving is not, giving is not giving your money away. When you give, you are essentially putting your money into a reward investment and God's interest rate is, anyone have a guess? 100%. Infinity. Even better, man. Infinity. Infinity. Like it is, you put in, you give, you give, and God is pleased with your gift. And not because of the dollar amount, not because of the, the check, the dollar, the money, that, that, that's, God doesn't need that. God, you give, and God's like, that's faith. That faith I reward. Boop. Let's put a reward in heaven. I'm being, it's not how God does it, but you know, boop, let's put a reward in the fund, the eternal fund, as it grows in interest and the interest rate is infinity. That means there's an infinite amount of endless, joyful pleasures of rewards and wealth for us in eternity. So instead of thinking of giving as giving it away, think of it as you're putting it into a savings account that accrues infinite interest in eternal rewards. Then maybe we'll understand the faith of the poor widow that gave everything she had. That is an eternal perspective on giving. And Paul says that if our generous giving comes from that eternal perspective where we value our eternity with God in faith and trust and dependence on him more than we value our earthly possessions, then that is coming from a faithful mind of Christ that understands the value of sacrifice for the sake of eternity. And the product of that kind of heart in giving is, as Paul says at the end of verse 19, the product is Or the result of that product is taking hold of that which is truly life. The words take hold is one Greek word that means to lay hold of or possess, to grab, to get. So when our giving isn't just writing a check because we're told to do it, but because we understand the gospel implications of our giving, that we are do that what that, that we are doing with our money, what Jesus did with his life, sacrificing it, knowing that through it will cause discomfort in this life. There is joy set before us in the form of eternal rewards and eternal joy in God's presence as our giving is an investment into his earthly kingdom and our investment into our own eternal rewards. Understanding that is possessing true life, is taking hold of true life because to give with that kind of faith with that kind of knowledge and understanding of what giving is really about, that is an expression of the gospel. And it means that you not only truly understand the gospel, but that you are living it. And that it is transforming you and that the gospel is feeding your life. So, to give in faith, to invest into God's kingdom through investing your money into eternal rewards, knowing that it will cost you in this life, is essentially the meaning of life. Because true life is a life like Christ's, a life of sacrifice. 
Is that the kind of sacrifice you're willing to make, not only for eternal rewards, but out of obedience to our God? Only faith can open your eyes to the reality that this life is not worth the investment. That everything we do in this life is for the future. That we are putting into a fund from our act of faith eternal joy, eternal glory to God, eternal satisfaction. Now we do build the church here and invest in the kingdom of God here in many ways and there is value in this life for it but the only value it has in this life is that it has eternal value. And only faith can give us an eternal perspective and only by faith can that eternal perspective transform the way we manage our money. Because money is ruining people's lives. Because it is so quick to reveal and expose our sinful nature. And God can take it from you, but he wants in your faith as an act of faith to give it because that's what he's like. Sacrifice is temporary. Sacrifice is temporary. But the joy of obedience and the joy of giving is eternal and the reward is worth it. Let's pray. Lord, we know that it's, it's, it's just money we're talking about and you're so much better than money and it's just, you don't need money and it's just a thing you created. The, the concept of currency, these, this, this thing that we give value to and use it to trade objects, it's just currency. It's just a construct you created for us to operate in this life. And it's a construct that we abuse sinfully often as a, in this world. And individually, we also abuse it and maybe sin with it often too. Um, but, but we want to use every construct and every idea and everything that you created the best we can in a way that honors and glorifies you. So we just ask that with money, we would trust on you and depend on you and give to you and... We would grow in sacrifice and grow in satisfaction in those sacrifices and we would grow in our faith. So put our faith to the test and I pray that your people would be so filled with your spirit that we would give abundantly and not just to the church but to the needs and to the people and to the poor and to everything that is needed. And we know, God, that this church alone, this single little church can't do everything, but we can do what you tell us to do. And you've clearly commanded us to be generous and ready to share. So make that not just an action, make that a product of our confidence, trust, dependence, and faith in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.